If you would take out your Bibles and turn to 1 John, looking at the end of chapter 2 of 1 John, going into chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in front of you. There should be one on your row somewhere. <clears throat> now, many people have said the Greek and the sentence structures are pretty simple in 1 John, but the concepts, the ideas behind what he's writing is, are very difficult. And many people have said even the cyclical nature, they've called it, of John's logic is very difficult to follow sometimes, and it's hard to preach on. And I can attest to that. This week was actually, this is a hard text to kind of figure out, okay, where is he going? What, what exactly is his point? What, why is he repeating these things? He's very different than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul engages in a very logical uh, argument style in his letters, where John takes a more Hebrew way of, of, of arguing around and, and, and bringing the issue back and back and back again. One of the things we see, or three of the things we see repeated often in 1 John, is this idea of the apostolic witness. What I mean by that is the apostles' witness to Jesus, that they saw him, that they lived with him, they, that they, as he says in chapter 1, they touched him. Right? They knew who he was, this word of life he talks about in chapter 1. He repeats this idea of the apostolic witness, that we have the gospel, we have the message of this truth because of their witness, because of their relationship with Jesus, and they knew him. We also see this theme of um, the anointing of the Spirit. And we talked about that last week, that, that our, our um, growth as believers happens because we have the Spirit, we have the, the Holy Spirit residing in us the anointing in us. Um, but we're also encouraged to abide. We see that theme also a lot throughout John's letter, that we're to abide in Christ. And we see that command as well in our text this morning. So we'll see those themes come up again and again. And last week we did talk about our anointing that we have. Uh, we talked about uh, knowing that it's the last hour, this time that we're living in, and and so, as we're moving forward, we're moving to this idea of the fact that we're children of God. That we have, as believers, we can have this assurance of, of eternal life because we're called children of God. We're called His children. So we're going to focus on some of those ideas this morning. So, If you would please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 28 of chapter 2 in 1 John, and we'll go through verse 10 chapter 3. This is God's holy word. And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. And everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, but God, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you please pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So who of you, when you think back in in the, the, the social justice class we're talking about um, in the video, he often says, now let's hop in our DeLorean and go back in time. So if you could hop in your DeLorean and go back in time to when you were a kid, did you like to pretend, did you like to make believe that you were someone else or doing something else? Were you an astronaut? Were you a superhero, a professional athlete? Did you play pretender? Do you still pre- play pretend? One of the things we love about uh, just having young kids is um, they love to pretend. I remember when our kids were, or when Leland was young, um, he would do that very often. And Hannah and I often give us the happiest of glances when we realize that our kids aren't asking for more TV, but instead they're playing with, us, with each other and playing pretend. Uh, that they're playing make-believe. Um, they're pretending to go on a camping trip, or they're pretending that they're a different family where, you know, Clara's the mommy and Leland's the daddy. Um, you know, playing pretend is really, it's good for kids. It's really good for their development. Studies have shown that it's, it's great for their um, development as kids. If, if they do it, create imaginary scenarios and pretend you're someone different doing something else. But, you know, however, as Christians... We're strongly warned against being pretenders when it comes to living out our faith. The word hypocrite literally means pretender or actor. You're putting on a show, right? What you see is not real, but you're pretending. You know, Jesus is the only person in the whole New Testament who uses the word hypocrite. He used it 17 times and throughout the New Testament, hypocrite. And if you remember, he's usually talking about one particular group, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're putting on a show. They're acting. You know, and news outlets love it when they find a Christian who turns out to be a hypocrite on certain issues. Right? The pastor who commits adultery. The conservative family who gets a divorce. The Christian girl who gets pregnant. The deacon who embezzles money from the church. You know, we hear these. These are, these are exciting articles that people love to read about, right? It's, people love to see Christians as hypocrites. But where are all the news articles celebrating the pastor, staying faithful to his church and to his wife for 50 years? Do you see those, do you see those articles written? It doesn't make the headline. An author, Trevin Wax, says, If we're honest, though, if we're really honest about ourselves, we can sniff out hypocrisy anywhere, including our own hearts. We talk a good talk when it comes to evangelism, but don't follow through with talking about Jesus with others. 
We applaud the importance of strong marriages and families, but behind closed doors we battle the cold-shouldered spouse or the defiance of our kids. Even in good families, quote-unquote good families and churches where Christ is exalted, our homes and churches are a mess, a mix of good and bad with our journey of holiness taking place all too slowly in fitful stops and starts. But doesn't everyone struggle with hypocrisy to some extent? Christians, non-Christians, atheists, whatever religion you're a part of. We all struggle to living up to our ideals, don't we? However, there's particular outrage, I think, about Christians being hypocrites. I think. I see that. Particular outrage. And what's interesting, and Trevin Wax talks about this, is there's just a hidden compliment behind that outrage of, of Christian hypocrisy. Behind that outrage is really a culture saying, we expect more from Christians than other people. We expect more. And that's because, he says, Christians worship a king whose standard was, by the world's measure, unreasonable, but filled with inexplicable hope, where people say, there's a kingdom like this, really? That there's this standard this high, that we're to be this pure in our thought, in our heart, in our actions, that, we're, that there is this standard of good that we're to live up to. Jesus condemned hypocrisy, but he also lifted high the intent of God's law. That there is this high, higher standard for Christians, because we are to represent the holy God to the world. So, we struggle with this, right? We struggle with obedience. So is the solution just to keep on pretending that we're holy when we're actually really struggling to just keep one command? Is that the solution? No, we're not supposed to pretend. The answer and the entry point into Christianity is repentance. That it's repentance and confession. It's humbling ourselves and admitting our failures and throwing ourselves upon His mercy crying out for him to return and to save us. Not to be hypocrites, not to, not to just pretend that we're okay when we're actually not. We're to admit it, we're to confess, we're to repent, and to, we're to wait on him. Some of the most famous words of the Bible come at the very end, the very last verse of the Bible. The last words that we read in Revelation twenty two twenty, where it says that he who testifies to these things, speaking of Jesus, says... Surely, I am coming soon. And John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Have you said those words to yourself? Where Jesus says, Surely, I'm coming soon. And we're saying, Come, Jesus. We say that together. Come, Lord Jesus. When we cling to that promise where Jesus says, I'm coming soon. As we read our text earlier, the word that kept popping out to me is appear. Appear, appear, appear. It's mentioned five different times that Jesus is going to appear, meaning he's going to come again, but he also came. He, he already appeared. He already appeared. And so, as Christians, we're to anticipate his second coming. And we're in doing so, we're to abide in him and we're to emulate him. We're to remain in Christ and we're to resemble Christ. The righteous one produces righteous ones, those who practice righteousness. Those whom God births, he does not abandon. So that's, that's the coming we're supposed to be looking forward to. 
but we're also to be thankful for His first coming. We're to ground all of our hope in what He's already done. We rest in the truth that Jesus takes away the power and the guilt of sin and that, that He destroyed the works of the devil when He came and died on the cross. So those are the two main uh, ideas we're going to be looking at. is looking forward to the second coming, but also being thankful for His first coming. And so the first idea is that we're going to see is that um, Jesus is coming to gather His children. That's our first idea. The second is that He's coming to make us like Him. And then we're going to turn and look to why He came. That Jesus came to take away sins. And fourth, He came to destroy the works of the devil. So two aspects of his, uh, two of his coming and two when he came already. So first, let's look at this idea that Jesus is coming to gather his children. We're going to start in verse 28. And now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So we're told right off the bat to do something. Abide in Him. So that when He appears, we will not shrink back. So abide in Him. Abide in Him. We, we see this quoted so many times in John's letters. It actually harkens back to John's Gospel in John 15, where Jesus says to abide in Me. Abide in Me. And what does He say will happen? You will bear much fruit. He gives this metaphor of the vine and the branches that we're to be connected to Him and bear much fruit. And so when we abide in Him, as we're looking forward to His coming, what gives us confidence? The fruit, right? The fruit that we see in our lives, the fruit that He's born through our abiding in Him. How you abide in, a, in Christ affects how much confidence you'll have before Him. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. When you think about Jesus coming, are you confident about that? Are you excited about that? Are you scared about that? Are you shrinking back in fear when you think about Jesus coming? How many of you have heard the words, wait until your father comes home? You just wait until your father comes home. Everybody, I feel like, has a story, right, where they had a day uh, when they did something Right? And I've heard James Barrett tell a story like this, where you did something and you knew that your father was going to come home and you were, you were in for it. And I have told this story before in the past, but for me, it was the day I broke our big screen TV, our brand new big screen TV. We had had it for like less than a day. And I was excited about this. I was going to plug my video game up to the back of it, so I pulled it out. These were back when TVs were, what, I don't know, a ton, right? Um, Huge TV. And I was pulling it out to plug in my video game, and I was so excited. And as I inched it out, it started teetering, and when that thing started to fall on me, I knew I couldn't hold it, so I ran. And it crashed, and it died. And we had not had it very long. And um, I knew I was in for it. And my mom didn't say the words, wait until your father's com- father come home, but I, I, I was scared. And she didn't have to say that. <laughs> she didn't have to tell me, wait. I was scared out of my mind. I think I was in the fetal position on the couch until he got home. But thankfully, he was gentle, and he was loving, and he was glad I was okay. That should not be the way we think about when Jesus comes back, right? Not in that kind of fear. Not in that that fear that we're going to be 
um, that the belt's coming out, so to speak, that we're in trouble. It's not like that. It's more like what Jesus says in John 14, verse 2, when he says he's prepared a place for us, that he has many mansions. And he says, and I go, and if I go and prepare, prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you hear the love? Do you hear the comforting words that when Jesus returns for his children, he is coming to be with them? That that is the main event, that we get to be with Jesus, that he gets to embrace us, that he gets to gather his children to him, and that we get to not... not you know, walking the, 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 the streets of gold will be great. Seeing loved ones will be great. But the best thing about heaven is that we'll get to see our Savior and that He takes us home to be with Him, to gather us. So we'll have that confidence to know and not shrink back in shame at His coming, that we look forward to His coming. That he will welcome us as His children. But there's also this idea that we'll have a certain righteousness about us that will be recognizable. Look at verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. That our very righteousness will certify, so to speak, our being born of Him. It's the idea that righteousness characterizes the Christian. And this is a big theme in John's letters, is it not? We, we read continually this idea that we are not to be sinners. We're not to be keep, keep on sinning and living the way we lived before. This is crystal clear, actually, in Paul's letter to the, first, to, the, in, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to list all of these types of sins. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. What he's saying there is that in conversion, when we're saved, we're no longer defined by our former lives. Whatever we struggled with, whatever we defined ourselves by, whatever we were most tempted by, whatever sins we fell into, we're not defined by that any longer. Because he says, for such were some of you. That's no longer your identification. Now it is children of God. And we don't live in that sin that we were saved from. Right? We're rescued from it. We don't live in it anymore. Now as you read verses in, in our passage, like, no one who abides in him, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. You might be thinking, well, I just can't ever sin ever again. If I sin ever again, then I'm not a Christian. I've lost my salvation, and I'm out. This doesn't mean perfection, if that's what you're thinking. Nowhere does it teach in the Bible that if you are a Christian, you must, from that point on, be absolutely perfect. It doesn't mean perfection, but it means direction. It means direction. Your direction has changed. Your... Um, you have repented. You have turned from that life. And you are, you are heading in a new direction. It doesn't mean Christians don't sin. It doesn't mean Christians don't do bad things. But ongoing, habitual, unchecked, zero conviction, zero sorrow over sin, zero repentance doesn't exist. 
in the life of the Christian. It just doesn't. It just doesn't happen. Sean O'Donnell, he's a commentator, he says, Within reason and without a perfectly precise estimation, we can know who is a Christian and who is not. Righteousness is not merely buried in our hearts. It occupies our feet, our hands, our eyes, our tongues. And in our text, John reiterates that point in at least seven different verses. What John is concerned about, see, in our passage, is, is the life of a believer, that we're to, we're to walk the walk. We're to talk the talk. We're to do it all that we preach. We're to look a certain way. Not to say that we're perfect, but there is a change in your life. There's a change in your life. William Barclay says, John is not setting before us a terrifying perfectionism, but he's demanding a life which is ever on the watch against sin. A life in which sin is not the normal accepted way but the abnormal moment of defeat. Did you hear that? Sin is not the normal way, but the abnormal moment of defeat. That is what happens in the life of a believer. See, before being saved, if you think back to your own life, before you were saved, there was no concern over sin. Right? There was no concern about what you were doing, necessarily. But now that you're saved, you have this battle waging. That some Christians talk about how they they feel dirty now because of their sin. Where before you didn't feel that struggle, you didn't feel that dirty, you didn't feel that sinful. So as as you continue in your faith, expect the battle to continue in intensity. I was talking to a fellow believer this this week, um, and he said, you know, it's, it's hard to end well as a Christian. It's hard to end well. And, and, and he was just talking about in his own life, he, he sees many, more, many cases these days where Christians are not ending well, meaning as they get older, they're struggling. They're letting their guard down on certain things. And they're not ending well. Remember, sanctification, that process of becoming more holy, is the entire life long. The entire life long. But he gives us something important to see that helps us in that fight. He says, look at verse 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We should just read that statement and just be amazed. Wow. That we're called children of God. See, See the love that God has shown us, that he calls us his children. The holy, sinless, perfect God calls us the sinful people, his children. Wow. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, the senior demon, Screwtape, says to his understudy, Wormwood, that guiding people to hell is sometimes difficult because the enemy, which is God, has has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into sons. What he's saying is it's hard to get people into hell when you're calling them sons, when you're calling them family. That is a huge huge weapon we have against the evil one to say, I am God's child. You can't touch me, Satan. I'm God's child. So think about that. Does your heavenly name mean, what does that mean to you that you're a child of God? Well, how does that help you that you're a child of God? Of God, Will you abide and remain in the one who calls you his own child? That's what we need to ask ourselves 
this morning. Are you amazed that you have a Father in heaven who loves you and calls you his own? When I was in college, I did a, a little bit of a, 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 I did some work with an international Bible study. So international students who came to James Madison, and we'd host Bible studies for them, give them community. They didn't have many friends when they got to JMU, and we would try to um, um, you know, love them and, and, and bring them in, to many of whom were coming out of different faiths and backgrounds and were not Christian. And one particular young girl um, was Muslim, came from a Muslim family, came to JMU, and by God's grace was saved through the ministry of a friend of mine. And she, she believed in Jesus. And, not, and she became ultra-passionate for the gospel. It was, it was amazing to see this. And, um, but it wasn't long after, as you can expect, that her family disowned her being a Muslim. Mother and father you know, rejected her. I'm not sure um, what ended up with, with her and her family, but I remember her telling us that Psalm 27, verse 10, meant the world to her, where it says, My father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Right? My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. We have a heavenly father who takes you in who loves you, who calls you his own child. But let's not lose the, um, just the amazing truth that's there. Let's not overlook that. We can become so used to these terms as Christians uh, that we're child, children of God, but for some people, this means the world to them, and it should mean the world to us. Let's not overlook these, these truths. So Jesus is coming to gather his children, but he's also coming to make us like him. We're to emulate him. We're to be like him. Look again at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as, as he is. So, so John is reiterating that point again. We are God's children now. Right now we are. And we're to be like him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, It's because we do not see ourselves as the children of God, that is why our unhappiness tends to get us down. Most of our failure to live the Christian life as we should live it is also due to the same cause. If only we realized who we were, who we are, then the problem of conduct and behavior would almost automatically be solved. You see, friends, moral directives, meaning do this, don't do this, live this way, don't live that way, flow from gospel indicatives, gospel realities of who you are, what God has done for you. How you're to act, that flows from the gospel, who you are. How you act always results from who you believe yourself to be. Right? If you believe yourself to be not loved, not um, loved by God or forgiven, you feel constant guilt over your sin, you're going to keep running back to sin. But if you know you're forgiven and the power of sin has been removed from you, you're going to live a life uh, that fights sin. Lloyd-Jones also says, we shall never be more the children of God than we are right now. What he's saying there is, we are children of God now. That will not change in heaven. We get to experience a heavenly reality right now. That we're children of God now. That's what First John is saying. And that's going to continue and be the exact same reality in heaven. Well, this is such an interesting verse because he says, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. 
but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. What we will be has not yet appeared. Have you considered that? That who you are is not done yet. That what you're going to be has not yet appeared. And that's going to appear in glory. That This idea that sanctification, this idea of becoming more holy, is progressive. Right? It's slow, it's lifelong, but what you will be is going to be amazing. It's not instant, but friends, we have no idea how glorious we will be in heaven. If you saw a glimpse or a picture of your sinless perfection in heaven, you would be astounded. You'd be tempted to fall down and worship because of how glorious we're going to be when that final day appears. And he says, he goes on in that verse and says, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him, because we're going to be like him. We're going to see him as he is. Sanctification is progressive, but it's also definite. It's going to happen. It's slow and difficult, and you'll trot along, and, and you'll have ups and downs, but you'll be like Jesus eventually. Anyone here ever frustrated at how slow your growth is in your Christian walk? That happens sometimes. Don't you go through seasons of of just, it's difficult, it's trotting along difficultly. But but friends, growth and family likeness is certain for the believer. You're going to become more and more like Jesus until the day he takes you home to be with him. It's promised to us. And he concludes that thought by saying in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Christians must strive for purity. Remember, not to save ourselves, but because our hope is in the pure one who saves us from ourselves. Sean O'Donnell says in that final verse, John doesn't express a wish. He doesn't say, I wish you would purify yourself. He doesn't present a possibility saying, you might purify yourself. He doesn't even say a command to say, purify yourself. He's saying rather a fact. That if you are believing and trusting in the pure one, you will become pure yourself. And that requires effort. It requires work. But it's a part of the the believer to do that work. To, To ask yourself the question, am I practicing righteousness? Am I working on that? Do you practice righteousness by abiding in Christ, emulating Him, remaining and resembling Him? So we're given those two blessings as we look to the future, as we look to that second coming, that appearing of Christ. We look to that with the hope of what's already been done in His, in his first appearing. So now we're going to turn our attention to verse 5 and following as we look at what He did in His first appearance, what Christ did when He first came. It says in verse 5, we'll go through 4 and 5, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. So you know that He appeared in order to take away sin. That the goal of Christ's first coming was to save sinners. So believer, if you trust in Christ, your guilt is taken away. The sin that you've committed your whole life long and continue to struggle with is taken away. The guilt of it. right? The, con- the condemnation of it. The fact that you ought to be punished by that because of that sin is taken away. 
because of the punishment he received on the cross. He's dealt with it. He's dealt with it forever. And in 1 John 1, verse 9, he already says that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. Meaning, going back to the idea of, not if we pretend that we're sinless, not if we play the role of the hypocrite, but if we humble ourselves, confess our sins, and receive his grace, he is able to cleanse us by his blood. But he also says this in verse 5, that in him there is no sin. That in Jesus there is no sin. That he had no shred of sin in his life. That Jesus was the perfect sacrifice because he was sinless. You think about why Jesus had to be God and man. He had to be God because we needed a sinless sacrifice. He had to be man because man had to atone for, for man's sin. And so he was sinless. If you look at 1 John Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, what does he call him? The righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the one, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world, that he is the righteous one. In 1 John 2, verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you, did you hear that? That He who knew no sin, there was no sin in Christ, but He took on our sin. He became sin so that we might become righteous. So friends, stop living... Don't live in the guilt of your sins. If you continue to live in the guilt of your sins, you will never be able to break from the power of sin. There is a temptation. The power of sin is tempting still in the life of a believer. But if you cut off the guilt, there is no guilt, there is no condemnation, that we are cleared, that we are forgiven, that we are loved. If you you know that, if you preach that to yourself day in and day out, the power of sin in your life will wane. It will get weaker. And weaker because you know the truth of the gospel. That's the first reason we're told that Jesus came. The second reason and final point is that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Read from 6 to verse 8. So no one abides, who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And here's the key idea. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. Have you ever thought about that as as Jesus' work as a destructive act? We think of it often positively, that he's done all these awesome things for us to save us from our sin and to call us his children. But he's also destroyed the works of the devil on the cross. There's an old uh, Latin phrase called the Christus Victor, that Jesus is the victor. He triumphed over sin, over death, over the devil in the work on the cross, that he destroyed his work, that Satan knows his time is short. And I read earlier from Genesis 3, verse 15, that in the, in the um, curses in Genesis 3 to the, to the serpent, he mentions this, that he 
That is, the, the seed of the woman will bruise your head, talking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. What that's talking about is the, is the cross, that Jesus is going to be wounded to the point of death, but in so doing, he's going to crush the, Satan's head and kill him and kill his power. He destroyed the works of the devil in his first appearing. And so from Genesis to Revelation, we see that battle waging all the way through. We see the promised one, Jesus coming to destroy the Satan's works. And he did it not by avoiding sacrifice, but becoming a sacrifice for us. His heel was bruised as he took on our punishment on the cross and took on our sin and guilt, which we could never bear ourselves and be free. We could never do it ourselves. But he did it for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for feeding us. We thank you that we are, we are so unworthy to be at your table. But cause us, Father, to be thankful. Cause us to be amazed and in wonder that you call us children of God. And yes, you call us children of God even now. And for the rest of eternity, that will never change. Because you know who your people are. So it calls us, Father, to be righteous, to, to look different, to look like your people. Transform us and cause us to love those who don't know you, that are far from you. Would you save them and help us to be your instrument, to have your word go out. So, Father, bless us and, and come, uh, bring us unity as a body and then to be sent out with that message of hope and grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.